Hi, Bruno Jr. here. Our podcast, Busting Addiction and Smiths, is sponsored by SafeHouseRehab.com. SafeHouse believes that traditional treatments fall short of the needs of clients who face the modern problems of addiction. Modern problems need modern solutions. Multiple addictions, multiple relapses, multiple triggers, and cheaper and more powerful street drugs set up unprecedented challenges facing treatment centers. What is needed is a more sophisticated approach, a better way forward. There are three reasons to choose our progressive modern treatment program. One, a more sophisticated intake process. Two, technology proven to enhance recovery. And three, the most robust aftercare program in our sector. To learn more, visit us at safehouserehab.com. I entered treatment because I knew it was the end. So I show up at Milwaukee Psychiatric Hospital on July 16th, 1993. I had spent six months in a horrible relapse, and that's how I bottomed out, and that's why I got fired. So it started around the holidays, and I thought I could control it. You know, one drink on a weekend or two drinks and a little dope, and man, I was smoking dope and drinking my brains out for the next six months, and it was, it was a journey into hell. And then I smashed my head apart you know, when they, when they uh, fired me. So I entered treatment the following week, I think, something like that, very, very soon thereafter. Show up at Milwaukee Psychiatric Hospital, and this is really cool, the young doctor, 35 years old, Dr. Stern, I think his name is. He said, you know, I'm recovering. I said, oh, I'm a surprise. you have? He said, five years. I said, okay. He says, well, come on in. I said, I'm not coming in today. i got stuff to do, right? I've got laundry to do. I've got to clean up. He says, you know what? Most people that say they'll be back, they don't come back. But I have a feeling you'll be back. I said, I will be back. You know, so I went home. And, you know, I had my last snort, uh, if you will, my last toot of... Uh, alcohol and drugs, and I got so drunk I couldn't finish my laundry, because I did my laundry at a laundromat that was connected to a bar, <laughs> right? So front door is, side door is laundry, front door on the other side, on corner, street corner is a bar, and they're connected. So people would do their laundry, have a beer, come back and finish their laundry. I did my laundry, had six beers, and then I got so drunk that uh, I didn't finish drying my clothes. I bring home the damp clothes and I hang them all over my apartment. And they were okay enough to kind of put away. And I drove myself to Milwaukee Psych at 9 a.m. He says, yeah, I had a feeling you'd be back. So I was in treatment. My, my uh, insurance only allowed, and I've, I didn't challenge them, but you're supposed to get, in, with most policies, a 28 days of residential treatment and then whatever else afterwards. My insurance covered nine, day, <laughs> nine days of residential. But they did cover what they call IOP, which is intensive outpatient, uh, therapy for a year and a half. So I'm in treatment, which, which is where I met my first sponsor. Okay, is They steered us into AA really quickly, and I'm grateful for it. So that's where I met my first sponsor, Jack. He was pretty cool. He worked for a dental implant company. He had some, a little bit of swagger, and I kind of, oh, this guy's pretty cool. He's younger than me. No, he's about the same age. I was 46 then. And then a few months, about, then I lost track of him. About five years later, he calls me. He says, hey, it's Jack. Jack, how's it going? Not so good. I'm going fast forward to a little incident that I find hilarious. Oh, not so good. What's going on? He says, I'm in jail. Can you bail me out? <laughs> I said, what happened? He says, I got a DUI, driving under the influence, or OUI, whatever it's called. 
I said, well, how did that happen? He says, well, I ran out of gas and I was pushing my vehicle <laughs> over a bridge. Maybe I could coast down to a gas station on the other side. I said, well, how's that? He said, well, they make you blow. And I went over the limit, even though I wasn't driving the car. <laughs> I said, that's funny. Can you lend me 500 bucks? I said, I can bail you out for 500. I was just about to pay my bills, but I need that money back in two weeks. I pick him up and he looks terrible. He looks like a greasy rat, you know, it's all greasy and dirty and barely keep him in my car, drop him off. I said, I want that money back in two weeks. I had to chase him for the money. He met me at a bookstore and paid me back about a month later. But why he had to pay me back in tens and fives and twenties, I don't know. Why don't you just get some hundred dollar bills from the bank? It looks like he scraped it together from the couch or something. So let me go back to this uh, treatment period. Um, they steered us into AA uh, into, and, and made us, quote, ask that we go to meetings. When I first checked in, they, they were very worried about my uh, detox because alcohol, I learned, is the most dangerous d drug to withdraw from. And you, you can get the DTs, you can get seizures, and you can die. But, so they don't know how badly off you really are. So they, they take your blood pressure and they give you Librium and watch you for a while, make sure you're okay. So then I enter a intensive outpatient. I think the first six months was three days a week in group and also one-on-ones. And I was, I was a pupil ready to, ready to learn. So the teacher appeared and the teacher was Margaret Underhill. I hope she's still alive. She's, she was unbelievable, I thought, and she still is. She would tell the doctors what to do. She was a very strong woman. She was an iron fist and a velvet glove, and that's what I needed. You know, you needed to hit me hard to get my attention. And so I asked her a few key questions in the course of, uh, of therapy, which, and the answers still linger with me today. I said, uh, Margaret, a few months into treatment, I said, Margaret, what's the point of treatment? Okay, so that's the dumb question. That, that sounds like a dumb question, but maybe it wasn't. She says, the whole point of treatment, young man, is to get you to work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, no kidding. Yeah, he says, you've got all these defenses and this dishonesties and this contempt within you that you, we need to talk, talk it out of you. We need to start changing your mind. I said, well, it sounds like brainwashing. She said, good, your brain is dirty. It needs washing, which is another insight. And then further down the road, uh, I, uh, I asked her, I said, Margaret, uh, what did I ask her that rang a bell? Um, oh, I said, Margaret, uh, when I get out into the real world, um, how, do I, how do I, you know, stay sober? She said, well, if you, if you attend your AA meetings, get yourself a sponsor, read the literature, do the prayer and meditation, and uh, be a kind and honest human being, you'll be fine. I said, well, that means I have... She says, you only have to change one thing. I said, what's that? She says, everything. <laughs> and so then in group, we were able to observe how other people were doing. And I noticed that the people that did well had a higher power in their lives. And I say this in all sincerity. I know that the, the guys that struggled, the guys that struggled, never talked about a higher power, always talked about they could do this or they could do that. And then they asked us to comment. And more than one of more than one of us commented, "Is like Mark needs a higher power. He thinks he can do it on his own, but you know he can't." And then another time, I was on the hot seat, which is okay. It's your turn to get honest, and we're going to confront you with some stuff. I'm going, "Oh crap!" 
But, you know, they exposed the, uh, the lies. I'll give you an example. There was one guy who was really, really sick. I mean, he was still trembling. He was struggling. He, was, he had been in jail. He had been in a mental hospital. But he was there in our group, and he was an equal to us. So I'm telling him about my sick relationship with my, uh, my, girl, my married girlfriend at the time. And he said, he turned to me, and this really hurt. But he was right. He says, she's just using you. He said it that way. And you know what? It was the truth. I was on the hot seat. I had to accept the truth. And it wasn't long after that until I decided to get honest. And I said, um, Jan, this was not her name, but I said, Jan, you know what? We're going to have to put this relationship on the shelf. And I, I struggled to be that honest with her. And prior to that, I shared with, with Margaret, I said, Margaret, I got, she said, you got to let go of this thing or it's going to kill you. You're going to go back to drinking. It's painful. It's dishonest. I said, well, Margaret, I'm going to pray for honesty. She said, no, pray for the courage to be honest. I had I was scheduled a, a car trip from Milwaukee to Minneapolis, so five some hours to a beautiful countryside. For five straight hours, I prayed over this. That's how much I agonized. And then on the way back, I called her and I said, we're going to have to put the relationship on the shelf, at least for now, you know, and I'm hoping that it's in my heart. Without saying it, I'm hoping it's over. She says, oh, that's okay. It was just a little fling for me. And I'm thinking, it meant nothing to you, really, did it? But it meant everything to me, which tells you that I was the addict and she was just cheating on her husband. <laughs> So that began, the intensive outpatient began with, you know, bottoming out, accepting help. And then about nine months later, I get the opportunity to be a, a house coordinator of a recovery house. And I learned a lot there. I learned the difference between BS and commitment. And the principle there was the longer you stay in a sober living facility, the, the better are your odds. I ended up sponsoring one guy whom I still know. I don't sponsor him anymore. And another guy, Carlos, great story, not a good one, but a great, you know, a really dramatic story. A Vietnam War vet had a great job as an electrician at uh, Miller Brewing, uh, Mexican-American, and decides he's going to go back to Mexico and find himself a wife. Okay, good. Well, he was in the, he was in the sober living facility, yeah, three months, something like that. He was a great guy, played the guitar, and during the good weather, be on the porch and sing, and he sang Spanish music. He knew how to play the guitar. I mean, this guy was just a delight. Big guy, burly guy. I can imagine him as a United States Marine in Vietnam. So he goes down to Mexico, finds himself a wife, comes back, but doesn't, you know, doesn't re-enter the program. Decides he was, he's going to drink, loses his job, and then in a moment of desperation, pulls out a gun and kills his wife, and pulls and then takes the same gun and turns it on on himself. And he takes three days to die. And so, you know, the consequences are the one guy, Dave, still doing okay, runs a, runs a, used to run a music store, now he does something else, I think a musical instrument store. He's doing all right. You know, I see him at the meetings once in a while. And the other guy, Carlos, is gone because he wasn't paying attention because he thought he could do it himself. He thought also that a wife would solve his problems or that he had the geographic cure. And he forgot. He just forgot. The g disease got to him. And you knew he was an alcoholic because of his story and the fact that he was an inpatient at a sober living facility. So that, that, you know, the light went on with a lot of those types of incidents. I could, I could relate more and more. But I learned a lot in, as a house coordinator. I could see the disease at work. I could see people being successful. 
I used to take a carload of them to the meetings around the corner, you know, uh, two times a week because I, you know, I had a car and I could drive. And then we had a meeting in the house once a week. So that was kind of the beginning of my true recovery, if you will, when, when uh, my thinking really started to change. My behavior was radically different, radically different. I was very lucky uh, because, you know, as a house coordinator, I didn't have to pay rent, utilities, phone, or any of that stuff. And I, I had a daughter in college still at the time, so I was paying for college. Uh, I also had, uh, you know, I was relieved of many and many of my obligations, and you know, rent and all that. So it was shelter for me. Uh, the train of financial consequences kept rolling down the track, though, and I had to deal with those at some point. But it was a temporary reprieve. It was a wonderful reprieve. And it also, you know, I'm in the back alley playing basketball because there are alleys there with basketball hoops in some of the garages. There's a bunch of kids playing basketball. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously the oldest and the biggest one. This 13-year-old, 11-year-old, 8-year-old, they're the way it should be. Just pick up basketball. And so we're picking teams, right? <laughs> and there's like maybe eight guys in total, let's say. So each guy gets to pick another guy. And so this kid, four years old, five years old, goes, I'm picking him. You know, he's pointing up at me. Turned out to be Hank, the kid that I ended up adopting, because then I ended up meeting his mother two doors down, and, I th and she's a beautiful woman, and I thought the man coming and going to her house was her husband when it was her brother. I said, who's that guy? She says, well, that's my uncle, Mark. I said, I'm going over there to meet your mom right now. <laughs> and she had a sister, too. So I ended up playing basketball with this kid, and so one day I'm at work, and... <laughs> And I get a call from one of the guys in the house. He says, hey, what's going on? He says, Hank's over here. He wants to know if you can come out and play. <laughs> yeah, and I said, yeah, tell him I'll be home, you know, 5 o'clock or whatever. And that's how that relationship started. But I was starting to come around. And I was starting to understand what it took to be a, you know, what it took to have a joyful and inspired life. And so that's, that's my story in my first, you know, couple of years in recovery when Everything changed. Everything changed. Our podcast is sponsored by SafeHouseRehab.com, a modern approach to recovery. To learn more, visit us at SafeHouseRehab.com.